We're going to read the second half of Revelation 20 and the first half of Revelation 21. Uh, and just as we get there, um, one helpful question that might encourage you in your personal Bible reading, uh, especially if you're reading uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is to ask the question, uh, what is unique about this particular passage? So you, you might have noticed if you've read uh, a lot of the Gospels, that they, they tell the same stories. Uh, oftentimes, Matthew or Mark will line up like 15 different stories of Jesus healing people, and Matthew and Luke will tell the same story about Jesus healing people. But a question that might help you and maybe explode your Bible reading a little bit is to ask, what is the unique thing about this passage? What is the unique thing Luke or Matthew or whoever's doing here? That's very helpful to ask. And um, it's been an important question as we've uh, looked at the last uh, six chapters of Revelation because we are seeing uh, a few takes on the same reality. John is showing us the end where Jesus will return, the wicked will be judged, and his people will be brought to glory. Uh, but he's doing that in several ways. We've seen uh, the seven bowls of God's wrath. We've seen a comparison of Babylon, this great wicked city, and God's people, the bride of Christ. Last week we saw Jesus, the rider on the white horse, defeat his enemies and his people reigning with him forever. And in this last passage, this last look at the end, there is one very interesting potentially sort of strange thing that stands out, and that is all of the movement. Uh, This passage is full of verbs of motion. Things are going up, coming down, fleeing, coming, being thrown, having to stand. There's all sorts of movement in this passage. And uh, at the very end of the passage, all the movement stops. And I think that's the point. Uh, At the end of time, there will be this great shakeup, and everything will land once and for all, and they will reach their final destination. So as we read, if you've wondered where your future is headed, this passage will tell you exactly where your future is headed, for better or for worse. So let's uh, let's hear God's word, starting in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. We will go through half of chapter 21. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven 
and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, as, as we do every time we open the scriptures, um, we just desperately need you. We need you to help us uh, to understand uh, what you've revealed. We need you to help us to uh, actually apply it to our lives and to live in light of it. And uh, we, need, we need comfort and encouragement. And some of us need rebuke and, and changes in direction. And so what we just pray is uh, the scriptures are open that you would speak and that you would minister to us through these words. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So one thing I have always uh, struggled with, and I, I think this is a pretty common struggle, is transition of major life changes. Um, e- even if it's uh, something like getting a new job or moving to a new place, in my most recent experience having a child, uh, even little things like a new speaking engagement or doing something in ministry I've never done before. Uh, these jack me up. I even have like physical symptoms. I won't sleep well. I'll be, I'll be wired for weeks. Uh, I can be really anxious. I even, uh, I even anticipate these changes for long periods of time. I'll get an opportunity and I'll, for two or three weeks I'll just be, I'll just be wired and thinking about it. Um, and one of my mentors here at East Cooper, uh, the famous Danny Beach, if you know him, said that uh, if your life was a snow globe, any major transition in your life will be a shaking of the snow globe. And so you know what happens when you take a snow globe. There's things are just crazy. If you, just imagine living in a snow globe, right? Like things are crazy inside of it, actually for, for quite a while. Eventually, uh, eventually things settle. And he said that's what life's like. I think, I think it's really helpful. And that's why when, when people uh, perhaps are new to town or in a new spot uh, spiritually or circumstantially and they're telling me they're really struggling, uh, I give them some weird-sounding advice. Just keep doing what you're doing for six months. It might take that long to settle. But as the book of Revelation closes, or begins to close, I guess, um, we're going to see John's final angle of this uh, picture of judgment and glory. And the angle, at least in the way I understand it, is a one huge giant shake of the snow globe. Everything that we presently know is going to move rapidly in radical directions and land forever. 
Every human soul eventually settles in a final destination. So we're going to see these great transitions, these great movements, and we'll make some personal application. So first, notice in verses 7 to 10 that evil will move one final time towards defeat. Now notice in verse 7 it says, When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. This goes back to the previous passage where, uh, however you interpret this, after the victory of Christ, Satan is bound for a thousand years. This could be a literal thousand years. I'm not totally sure. Uh, But the idea uh, is at some point he is released. And notice this little verb of motion. He comes out. He leaves his prison. He goes out among the world and deceives the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog. If you're wondering why Gog and Magog is there, it's simply because in Ezekiel 38 to 39, Ezekiel prophesies at the end of time, God's going to lift his people up, and there are going to be these two wicked nations that come to destroy them. And so what uh, John is doing, he says, hey, if you want to understand this passage, go read Ezekiel 38 and 39. So I'd encourage you guys to go do that. It talks about how God gathers the nations for battle against his people to get glory over them. But anyways, here in this passage, Satan comes out, and then the nations go up. It says in verse 9, they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, that, that word in the original language, going up. So Satan comes out, the nations go up. They surround God's people. They attempt, just like they did last week, to make war against God and destroy his people. Satan comes out, the nations go up, but at the end of verse 9, fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. Evil once and for all, the nations of the earth opposed to God, they are destroyed. Uh, God's people don't fight the battle, they don't take up arms, they just watch. They sit helpless but full of faith in the city. So when you watch the news or you notice forces of evil at work in your own life and the lives of people you love, just know that eventually evil will move towards defeat. And if you align yourself with evil, you will too. So first, evil will move towards defeat. Second, we see that all things will move towards judgment before God's throne. Notice verse 11. A great white throne appears and him who was seated on it. This is God the Father. We see this throne throughout the whole book of Revelation. But the throne's always been in heaven. Now the throne invades the earth. And here's what it says, what what happens. From his presence, again, notice the language. Uh, Earth and sky flee away. They scatter. No place is found for them. Uh, I don't know exactly what this uh, passage describes, but we know that physical reality, as we know it, will melt before the face of God when he appears. Uh, The most basic thing we've taken for granted, gravity, air, physical reality, all those things are gone when God's throne appears. But 2 Peter says they they are burned. This present life, this present world flees. But though creation flees, all of humanity stands before the throne. Look at verse 12. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Many people probably would like to flee, right? But they are made to stand. Uh, Verse 13 and 14 go on to describe how 
the sea gives up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades give up the dead who were in it. Um, I think the idea there is that nobody escapes this day. It doesn't matter where you've gone, how far you are, or how long you've been dead. Everyone, every single member of the human race since the beginning of time is gathered before God's throne. And when they are gathered, as this passage says twice, very clearly, they are judged by what they have done. That happens twice. End of verse 12 and at the end of verse 13, they are judged. We will be judged according to what we've done. The image this passage gives is of two books. Just notice that um, the verse, end of verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Uh, the idea here is the image is a, there's a book that has your life written in it. Every action, every thought, every youthful stupidity you, th- you have forgotten. All, 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 the, all those hidden sins, a, a 24-7 camera on your life and on your heart, written down on display for the whole universe to see before God. Your life held up in display in a book. You being judged according to what is written there. But there's another book written. Notice John brings that out. Another book is written, which is the book of life. As we see in other parts of the book of Revelation, this book contains the names of Jesus' people, those people he has called to himself, that he's chosen, people who have believed in Christ. I think the idea here is, is their, whole, their whole lives are on display, but they're found in the book of life. Uh, the same way we come to God now, right? not by our works or our righteousness, by, by how well we've done this week, but simply through faith in Jesus, that's how it will be on the Day of Judgment. And it's very interesting, this emphasis on being judged by what is written in the books. I think, I think there's two things going on here. First of all, people apart from Jesus, um, they will justly be judged. What happens to them at the end of verse uh, 15, being thrown in the lake of fire, that's not unfair of God. What's going to be seen very clearly before the throne is that people have fallen short of the glory of God, that they deserve what they're going to get. But for believers, this totally gets flipped on its head. If your name's written in the book of life, if you're, if you're saved through the blood of Jesus, if you've trusted him, what, what you get judged by now are the righteous things you've done. Every little act of obedience, every unnoticed act of service, every prayer that goes unmentioned, all of those things held up on display, rewarded forever. And uh, I just want to encourage you guys that your I wouldn't I wouldn't worry too much about the past here. You can come to Jesus this moment and have your past completely cleansed. But I want you to think about today. What you do with your life today is going to be written down and presented before all of the universe and before God at the day of judgment. I think, I think a lot of the reason sometimes we sin is we have this illusion that our sins can be held in secret. In fact, we're terrified that other people will find them out. Hey, listen, guys, there's nowhere to hide. One day your whole life's going to be on display, right? So I, I just want to encourage you guys to have some sobriety in how you live today. It will be recorded. At the same time, if you're in Christ, it won't just be recorded. It will be rewarded. Think about what you, what you would do today, not if you were like, all right, whew, Sunday, time to do me for a day. 
But if you live like, no, whatever I do today, there can be eternal rewards. God is, God is going to take what I do with my life today, and he's going to reward me at the day of judgment forever in the coming kingdom. If that gave you some motivation to maybe get out of your comfort zone or to stretch yourself a little bit in obedience to Jesus. Notice, uh, everybody, through all this movement and transition, everybody eventually lands. Uh, People all either land in chapter 20, verse 15, the lake of fire, or chapter 21, verse 1, the new heaven or new earth. Where is your life headed? What is all your movement and busyness and routine and struggles? Where are they going? They aren't going primarily towards the next job or the next relationship or that next bucket list activity. They're not primarily heading to a nursing home or to cancer or a car crash or whatever way in which you're going to die. Primarily, your life is moving to a great white throne. That is where your life is going. That is the day for which you must live. Because... That day will determine where you eventually land. There's one more movement in this passage, and it's the best one. Verse Chapter 21, verse 1. The first heaven and first earth, so reality as we know it, particularly all of the bad and cursed parts of reality as we know it, it passes away, it goes away. Verse 2, the holy city, New Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Heaven comes down to earth. That's the last movement in the history of the universe. I think what this passage describes, I'm not totally sure, but I think this passage describes the marriage of heaven and earth. Everything good that you love about physical reality rightly, what it feels like to embrace a friend, right? Craft coffee for me, whatever it is for you, whatever you, whatever you enjoy, how it feels after you get a really good workout in, you're like, man, endorphins. This is great, right? My favorite drug, endorphins, right? Um, all, everything you love about physical reality, all the good things God has created, um, those remain. They'll, they'll pass through fire, but those remain. But everything good in heaven, seeing the glory of Jesus face to face, being perfect, being righteous, being pure, no longer being able to sin, those things are married together forever. That is where God's people go. And when heaven comes to earth, God finally forever comes to be with his people. Verse 3, there's this loud voice, probably an angel speaking from the throne, who says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Uh, This verse is the fulfillment of the entire Bible. Every single Bible story you read in the scriptures, Old Testament, they're all heading here. In the beginning of Genesis 1, God set up a garden. He made a garden of delight, which is what Eden means, for his people to walk with him. That was the whole purpose of creation, to have Adam and Eve and all the people they would create in a garden with him, to dwell with him. They lost that through sin, throughout the scriptures, over and over again. God makes ways to be with his people, first in the tabernacle, then in the temple, finally in Jesus. And and, and the New Testament says we are the people of the Spirit, that God actually dwells in us. But even now, as we experience that, we realize that that's a a partial thing. 
We don't see Jesus face to face. But one day, here in the new creation, when we finally land, God will dwell tangibly with his people. You will finally have what you've longed for your whole life. And when God comes to dwell with his people, he brings healing. Uh, Notice verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have gone away. Um, Every hurting and broken body, every hurting and broken soul, every hurting and broken mind that has rested on Jesus will be healed and freed forever. The lame will walk, the handicapped will be restored, the cancer victim will beat it forever. The lonely will be full and happy. And I'm not, I don't think this is in the text, but I just want to say this. Um, if you are hurting this morning, if you ever considered that perhaps one of the reasons you are hurting is so that it, you can experience God healing you. Right? What's the first thing that happens in heaven? God wipes away the tears from his people's eyes. If there are no tears... You don't get to experience God personally wiping them from your eyes. This is kind of a silly example in light of heaven, but most of us know the first day after you get over the flu is a glorious day. You just, it just feels so good to be normal again, right? Ah, like I just feel normal. And I think, I think that just whispers to us what this moment will be like. And finally, things we didn't even notice that have been holding us down our whole lives were healed from you know uh, another thing about transition is oftentimes uh, you can experience homesickness some of you who have maybe more recently graduated college might remember your freshman year actually wasn't that much fun you actually spent most of your freshman year in college missing your parents and your family uh, many of you who have recently come into the working world uh, after spending your senior year in college being like, I'm so done with this. You know, you get in the working world and all of a sudden you just, you miss wherever you used to be. We've all got longings like that for the good old days, these times where we thought uh, life was great. And I, I, I listened to this wonderful sermon actually in the book of Genesis, and uh, this British pastor was talking about all the longings and dreams of our lives for other times, whether they're in the past or the future. Uh, those are primarily homesickness for heaven that most of our pangs and regrets are homesickness for what this passage reveals. A day we will finally belong, where we'll be with God, where we'll have no more pain. I just encourage you, sometimes what helps a little bit with homesickness is you pick up the phone and you call mom and dad or whatever. You look, you look at an old yearbook photo or something. Uh, and I think this morning, pick up this passage, chew on it receive it by faith and there will still be longings and pangs but you'll be given grace to endure until there aren't so uh i think what we've seen in revelation 20 and 21 is that at the end of time there will be this great shake-up things are going to move drastically once for all and like c.s lewis said all of us every day are moving towards one of these final destinations and we're even helping others to move one way or the other. Life is weighty in light of that movement.
But there's one here who is not moving at all. In fact, uh, this passage says a few times that God is seated on his throne, that he alone is not in transition. And now he speaks. And uh, it's going to be really fun because I made a little application so far, but God is going to now apply this passage for us. It doesn't happen very often in the Bible, but sometimes God speaks and lets you know, here is what you should do or understand in light of what I've just said. So it's going to be uh, fairly straightforward. Um, there are three things that God says about this vision. Uh, we will walk through the first two relatively quickly and then spend a little bit of time on the last one. Here's the first thing God says, verse 5, after he brings heaven to earth, he says, Behold, I am making all things new. Notice the tense of that verse. It's not, I will make all things new. It's not, I have made all things new. It's, I am making. Otherwise, I, th I, think, I think what the Lord is doing here, he's speaking through time to us, and he's saying, right now, in your present circumstances, what I'm doing is I'm bringing everything to this day when it's new. Right now, what's going on in your life, in your trials, in your struggles, in the boredom, I am making all things new. I'm doing that in the routine. And again, we all know that we love new things. When you guys first got your new phone or your new smartwatch, you just fiddled with it, right? Some of us have the financial freedom to enjoy new car smell occasionally, and it's, it's almost cliche how much, how much fun that is that we enjoy that. And, you know, new places and relationships can have this intoxicating excitement with them. But in this life, that always wears off. Nothing stays new for long. But there's a day coming, a day which God is bringing all history to, where everything will be new forever, where people will be new, where creation will be new. That's what God is doing in history and in your life. One day, your body will be new. No more, oh my goodness, I'm in my late 20s and feel 50 aches. No more physical or mental limitations. You will be new. So again, if you're looking around at your life, or you're looking around at your dysfunctional local church, and you're wondering, what is God doing here? He is making things new. First application, God's making things new. Here's the second one. It's a very interesting one. Here it is. But seriously, but seriously, I really am making things new. Look at the end of, uh, look at the end of verse 5. God knows that we need to hear this. Also, he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. This is the verse I wanted to skip. This is the verse we all want to skip. Why is he telling me to write this? Like, what's the big deal here? The big deal is, no, 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 no. Stop for a second. This really is true. It's really going to happen. I People who don't believe in Jesus, they really will be thrown into the lake of fire. People who trust Christ, no matter how they appear in this life now, right? Who, people who endure, they really will come to a day when they're new, when they have their desires satisfied. It's going to happen. Faithful and true, these words, that's the same thing, the same uh, phrase is used to describe Jesus in the chapter we just uh, read last week, where he appears on the white horse. He's called faithful and true. These words will happen. It's certain. And I think this really meets us in the everyday. I think one of the greatest blind spots I have as someone who lives with kind of a lot of material comfort and lots of busy activities is I live in practical unbelief of an eternal hell and an eternal heaven. 
you've probably noticed you can go days, maybe weeks, and months without really thinking about eternity. Whenever I am acting like I've got to have fun or rest now, I am not believing I will have those things forever. When, like has happened so many times in my life, I have an opportunity, an uncomfortable opportunity maybe, uh, to speak to someone about Christ, and I just kind of don't pull the trigger or whatever, right? I don't really believe that person is heading to hell forever apart from, from the, the Lord saving them through the gospel. So again, here we have this assurance. And this assurance is meant, um, meant to give us some teeth in this life and how we live. Uh, there was a, a, a British unbeliever, and he was talking to a group of pastors one time. And here's, here's what he said. This, this, this is uh, it's so funny how unbelievers can say really convicting things. He said this. He was talking to a group of pastors. He said, gentlemen, if I believed what you believe about hell and the entire country of England was covered in broken glass, I would crawl the length of it on bare hands and knees if it would save one person from this hell. And guys, that, that really gets me. But if hell is a real place and people really will spend eternity there, there is no cost too high to see someone come to know Jesus. If, if it costs you going across the world and living in discomfort and obscurity and abandoning all of your dreams for one person to be rescued from that, it is worth it. These words are trustworthy and true. Live like they are true. So one more thing that God says from the throne. He says this in verse 6. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It's interesting, this uh, revelation opens with these words. In fact, I think this might be the message of the whole book summed up in this statement right here. God is the beginning and the end. He, he, uh, he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the absolute sinner. Uh, he started history. Here he's ending history. He created your life. One day he will determine your eternal life. I think God is uh, pictured here like the sun, where every aspect of existence are like the planets orbiting around him. And I think, uh, you, know, you know why the, the planets orbit around the sun? Primarily because of the sun's immense weight. I think it has gravitational pull because it's so heavy. And I think God's reality in this book, he's the weightiest, most significant reality in the universe. Everything orbits around him. Like Paul says in Romans 11, all things are from him and through him and to him. Your life, human history, has come from God. It is heading to God. And as the center of the universe, God is so kind to tell us very clearly what is going to happen to the different kinds of people who live in his universe. He determines uh, the fate of, of human beings and their souls, but he's been very kind here to make it very clear. Now again, sometimes you probably have experienced this. You walk out on a Sunday, maybe from Sunday school, and you're thinking, I have no idea what Leland was saying. <laughs> I, ha I have no clue, like, and that's my fault. I'll work on that. Just let me know if that happens, and I'll, uh, I'll try to improve. Uh, it happens a lot in, in sermons, though, unfortunately, but God is very clear. He communicates 
very clearly. He does not want anyone here to leave confused about what's going to happen. Here's what he says. Three things to three classes of people. First, it's the, uh, sorry, the end of verse 6. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. People who spiritually thirst will be given life forever. I think there's probably a reference here to the Beatitudes, where it's the people who are poor in spirit who get the kingdom of heaven, who realize their need, who, who see themselves as broken sinners in need of grace, not as righteous people whom God better bless. I think the idea here is anyone who comes brokenhearted to Jesus, God is going to freely give them life forever. And this uh, river of the water of life, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, is this river flowing through the new Eden. God's going to give life freely. Just imagine, though, it's incredible that as the center of the universe, the very first thing God says is grace. All you have to do is thirst and take that thirst to the only source of life, and you will have life forever. Second thing, those who conquer will have an inheritance. Look at uh, verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Uh, If the first words were spoken to people who maybe weren't Christians yet and inviting them to life, the second words are speaking to people who are Christians or who claim to be Christians. And it's a very double-edged word. First it says, if you are currently a Christian, you must conquer. You must overcome. You must overcome the world, overcome its temptations, overcome the sin that lives in you. You must fight. And what does it mean to conquer? Uh, Primarily through the book of Revelation, conquering is sacrificing. Jesus conquered by laying his life down. In Revelation 10 and 11, this picture of the church, they conquer the nations. They see the nations come uh, to, to Jesus when they lay their lives down. The idea here is that God's people must conquer through sacrificial living. They must lay their lives down. Now, laying one's life down has never saved anybody. Only Jesus saves. But true grace, genuine faith, always results in this conquering. This passage is a charge. It's a reminder. And if you conquer, you will have this heritage or this inheritance. Uh, The picture in this passage will be yours, certainly. And it's it's a very personal inheritance. Look at the end of verse 7. I will be his God and he will be my son. A lot of us in here have family parent issues. Many of us have been wounded by our families. Some of us have really good families, but there's an obvious appeal here to that. There's familiarity here. There's personal, the Father touching your life forever. So, the thirsty will be given life if they come. The conquering will have an inheritance. And third, the unrepentant will suffer forever. This might sound harsh to you guys, But if it's true, this is grace. God is speaking clearly here. He wants nobody to go to this faith. So he speaks very clearly. But notice um, this list um, and just the structure of this list. uh, These are describing people who remain in their sin. 
We're not talking about one time you did this back in the day. We're talking about people who do not repent. Notice how all of the, the nouns and adjectives here are describing a state of life. Here's what it says. But for the cowardly, the faithless, the testable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars. There's this kind of list of all the characteristic sins of humanity. Their portion will be in the lake of fire, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Um, there might be a, can't talk about all these things, but we can maybe mention a couple of them. Um, one of the kinds of people who will, if they do not repent, um, are the faithless. I think you could translate this the unbelieving. Notice uh, in God's eyes, nobody has struggles rationally to believe the Bible. People refuse to believe what it says. Um, that, that's the truth about human hearts. It's not that there's stuff in here that is unbelievable. There's a heart state that refuses to believe. If people continue in that, no matter how nice they might be, this is their portion. I think uh, something that's important to say here in our culture particularly, as notice here, it's the sexually immoral. Those who do not leave their sexual sin. Now again, the Bible does not require sexual perfection, but it absolutely requires sexual repentance. It requires turning, change. When you fall, you get up, you move. And there's, there's weight to those secret sins. I'm not saying that if you blew it last night, you can't go to heaven. But I am saying that if you do not get back on your knees and turn and repent, if you do not change, if you do not leave your sin, God is very clear about where your inheritance will be. But there's one word here that stands out. It's actually uh, nowhere else in this book and nowhere else I, at least in my reading of uh, lists like this in the New Testament, and it's this word cowardly. Uh, but as for the cowardly, you, you don't see the Bible rebuke cowardice very often, um, but it's right here. And I think, I think the idea is that on one end you have the conquerors, Christians who persevere through pressure, and the other end you have the cowardly, Christians who cave through pressure. Remember this book was written to a bunch of Roman churches with this huge, nasty Roman culture pressing on them. Uh, the idea of a cowardly Christian in first century Rome would be someone who's like, yeah, I love Jesus, but to keep my job, I'm going to sacrifice to the emperor, or I'm going I'm to listen to this false teacher who helps me feel better about my life. That's what it'd be like to be cowardly in uh, first century Rome. In 21st century America, it might be someone who claims to be a Christian, who says they love Jesus, who maybe is involved in church, but they're not going to embrace or proclaim all of the offenses and offensive things Christians believe or they're not going to live radically like Jesus. They're just going to kind of sit back. Again, God does not require perfection. He doesn't require that you've done wonderfully so far. He requires repentance. So as we begin to wrap up, I just want to try to be explicitly clear because we have this passage that gives us this wonderful picture of heaven. And most of us have been to funerals of people who definitely weren't Christians. And the pastor just got up there and said, this is where this person is. We've all had experiences like that. And I want to be real clear about what heaven is. So, and I want to give you uh, just a, an image here. Maybe this will help. All right. Heaven is not, it is not a consolation prize if your dreams in this life work out. It's not some cheap kind of, oh, yeah, well, it's, it's a better place. It's not some, like, basically worthless, I better have fun now because, you know, it'll be, I don't know what it's going to be like. That's not what it is. 
Heaven is definitely not a participation trophy that everyone who shows up gets it. That's not, that's not heaven. Heaven in this passage, according to Revelation, is a treasure to be won. It is an infinite, unthinkably precious reality. Something that, that you, could, you could strain your imagination to the fullest and not even get close to how good it'll be. But it is a treasure to be won. It's like the prize for a marathon, a marathon you must run. Uh, Richard Baxter, one of my old dead heroes, he wrote this wonderful book called The Reformed Pastor. And uh, he gives these, these encouragements to, to pastors, and it's based on this verse in the book of Acts called, Take heed to yourselves, watch yourselves. And here's his first encouragement. Watch yourselves because you have a heaven to win or to lose. And I think Revelation has reminded us again and again of this truth, that we are saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus alone, but that grace and that faith will give us the power to endure and continue. That genuine grace, genuine faith in Jesus, it does not make perfection, but it creates this desire to endure, this going forward, this moving towards Christ, this enduring with him. Again, this is not work salvation. This is grace working in your life. So, like I said at the beginning, it is a universal human experience, at least in my experience, uh, for transitions to be big deals. And I've noticed uh, oftentimes I will expect and plan for them. Uh, if you're about to move, hopefully you'll pack. And if you're human, you'll probably stress out. You get a uh, huge, crazy job interview or speaking engagement. If you're smart, you'll prepare. If you're human, you'll probably freak out. Um, if you uh, have a giant exam you never studied for or paid attention once in class, you might be sweating it a little bit the night before. On the other end, if you are one day away from the world's greatest vacation that you have dreamed up and saved money for for years, you will probably have a better attitude than normal your last day at work. You'll be so excited. I think the intent of this passage, these clear views of these movements and where they are headed, is that kind of expectation would begin to invade our lives. That we would live like we really are on the edge of appearing before this great white throne. That if we've walked into this room, perhaps a Christian, but very much far from Jesus, not having spent time with him in months, not having really obeyed him in months, kind of uncertain. I think he wants, the Lord wants the lake of fire to make us tremble and to say, man, I am getting right with the Lord. I am coming to him today. I'm, I'm getting back with him. At the same time, if you're walking with Jesus and you're kind of worn out and discouraged and frustrated, I think he wants the joy of what's ahead to invade your life a little bit. So let's pray to that end. Lord, uh, we do ask that uh, you would give us this, I think, just rare and precious gift of living with eternity in view. I just plead uh, that heaven and hell would be the two greatest realities that govern our days and our lifestyle choices and how we spend our time and how we think and pray. Uh, Lord, just in line of this passage, I just pray for, for my family members and loved ones who, apart from repentance, uh, will go to judgment. And just plead, um, 
you would save them and give me the courage to speak to them and uh, you just work in their lives. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.